Hi, I'm Father Gregory Pine. And I'm Father Jacob Bertrand Jancic. And you're listening to the Catholic Classics Podcast, where we seek to grow our interior lives by learning from the Church's greatest saints and teachers. Each season, we'll read through a great work, explain its spiritual principles, and help you apply its timeless wisdom to your life. The Catholic Classics Podcast is brought to you by Ascension. This season, we are reading Ascension's edition of Confessions by St. Augustine. A few reminders before we get started. To download the reading plan for Confessions, visit ascensionpress.com slash catholicclassics or text CONFESSIONS to 33777. Click follow or subscribe in your podcast app for daily notifications. This is Day 34. Today we'll be reading Book 9, Chapters 8 through 10 in the Ascension edition of the book. If you'd like to hear some of our conversations on other subjects, follow up with us and three of our brother priests on the podcast God's Planning. There you'll find weekly episodes on a variety of Catholic themes with occasional guests, scriptural meditations, and special series. You can find God's Planning with any podcast app on YouTube and at godsplanning.org. Before we get into the reading, a quick look at what we're covering today. In these chapters, we begin to move into one of the most difficult moments and experiences of St. Augustine's life, the death of his mother, St. Monica. Uh, St. Augustine here tells the story of her life, as it were, gives her a sort of biographical moment in his autobiography. He tells of her childhood, her marriage, her being sort of raised in the faith and living the faith, before recounting a conversation with her that he has about heaven just preceding her death. So these chapters focus on St. Augustine and his his love and memory of his mom. So it's kind of a, a beautiful moment to think about St. Monica. So before we do, let's get started with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Breathe in me, O Holy Spirit, that all my thoughts may be holy. Act in me, O Holy Spirit, that my work too may be holy. Draw my heart, O Holy Spirit, that I love but what is holy. Strengthen me, O Holy Spirit, to defend all that is holy. Guard me then, O Holy Spirit, that I always may be holy. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Chapter 8. You who make men dwell with one mind in one house also join to our company Aeodius, a young man from our own city, a military officer who had preceded us in conversion to you and baptism. Having set aside secular warfare, he now girded himself in service to yours. We were together preparing to live as a group in devotion. We sought where we might best serve you and together decided to return to Africa. On our way, having gone as far as Ostia, my mother departed from this life. There are many details that I omit here, for I am hastening on. Receive my confessions and thanksgivings, O my God, for the countless things that I am now passing over in silence. But I will not exclude anything that my soul might bring forth about your handmaid, who brought me forth both in the flesh that I might be born into this world's temporal light, and in the heart that I might be born into light eternal. It is not her gifts that I wish to speak of, but rather yours in her, for she neither fashioned nor educated herself. You created her, and neither her father nor her mother knew what a woman would come from them. And she was educated in fear of you by the rod of your Christ, the discipline of your only son in a Christian house, by a good member of your church. However, when she would speak of this good discipline, she would usually pray as a very old maidservant who had carried her own father when he was a child, as small children were once upon a time carried about on the backs of older girls. Because of this, as well as her great age and excellent character, she was held in esteem by the heads of that Christian family. 
Therefore, her master's daughters were entrusted to her care, which she exercised diligently, vigorously restraining them when necessary, with a holy severity and teaching them with sober discretion. For even if they were parched with thirst, she would only allow them to drink water during the time when they were most temperately fed at their parents' table, thus preventing an evil habit and adding this wholesome advice, you now drink water because you do not have wine within your grasp. However, some day when you are married and are the mistress of cellars and cupboards, water will not seem good enough, though the habit of drinking will abide. Through this way of instructing them and on the basis of her authority, she put a break on the greediness of childhood and shaped their very thirst in such excellent moderation that they did not wish to have the very things that they should not have. And yet, as your handmaid told me, her son, the love of wine crept up on her. For when her parents told her, a sober maiden, to draw wine from the barrels as was customary, she held the vessel under the opening, and before she poured the wine into the flagon, she took a sip with the tip of her lips. But her instinctive habits let her refuse to drink more. For she did not do this out of any kind of desire for drink, but only out of youthful exuberance, which bubbles over into little playful actions that the gravity of elders usually hold back. Thus each day adding a little more to that small beginning, for he who despises small things will fail little by little, she had fallen into a habit of greedily drinking cups of wine nearly filled to the brim. Where then was that discreet old woman with her vigorous prohibitions? Could anything else help against a secret disease if your healing hand, O Lord, did not watch over us? Though her father, mother, and nursemaid were absent, you were present, you who created and call us, you who work through those whom you have set over us, by whom you work out some part of the salvation of our souls. What then did you do, O my God? How did you cure her? By what means did you heal her? Did you not bring forth from another soul a stern and sharp scolding, like a lance hurled from your hidden storehouse of provisions, and thus remove all this foulness at once? For a maidservant who used to accompany her to the cellar began to argue with her young mistress, as would happen. Thus, when they were alone, she mocked her about this fault, insulting her sharply by calling her a wine-biber. She was immediately stung by this insult and saw the foulness of what she was doing and instantly condemned and forsook it. Just as flattering friends pervert us, so too do reproachful enemies correct us. However, you repay them according to what they intended in so doing, not according to what you did through them. For that maidservant in her anger sought to trouble her mistress, not to amend her, and did so in private, either because the time and place happened to thus strike her, or lest she should be rebuked for not reporting this earlier. But you, Lord, who guide all things in heaven and on earth, who turn the deep torrents to your purposes and rule the turbulent tide of the ages, healed one soul by the very lack of health in another. So let not anyone, when he observes this, ascribe it to his own power, if someone else whom he wished to be reformed is indeed reformed through his own words. Chapter 9 Thus she was brought up modestly and soberly, subject to her parents by you rather than to you by them. As soon as she was old enough to be married, she was given to a husband. She served him as her lord, and she diligently sought to win him for you, preaching to him through her actions by which you ornamented her, making her so reverently lovable and admirable to her husband. And she endured infidelities against their marriage bed, never quarreling with her husband about this, for she desired that your mercy would come upon him, so that believing in you he might be made chaste. But but just as he could be great in affection, so too did he have a fiery temper. However, she learned not to resist an angry husband, whether in deed or even in word. Only when he was even and tranquil, in a good mood to receive it, would she then give an account of her actions if he had happened to take offense too quickly. 
In short, while many women who had milder husbands would cast blame on their husbands' lives with their faces witnessing to the shameful marks of beatings, she would blame their tongues, giving them earnest advice in a light-hearted tone, telling them that from the moment they heard the words of marriage read to them, that they should hold them to be contracts that made them handmaidens. Thus remembering their state, they should not set themselves in opposition to their lords. And knowing that she had endured so fierce a husband, they marveled at the fact that nobody had ever heard or seen evidence of her being beaten by Patricius, or even that there had been any domestic disagreement between them, not even for a day. Thus as friends they asked her how this was so, and she taught them the practice mentioned above. Those wives who observed it expressed gratitude for her good advice, whereas those who did not found no relief and suffered. Her mother-in-law had at first been provoked against her by the whispers of evil servants, but she likewise overcame this by deference and persevering endurance and meekness, with such great success that her mother-in-law told her son about the meddling tongues that had disturbed the domestic peace between her and her daughter-in-law, asking him to correct them. Then afterwards, in compliance with his mother's wishes and for the good order of the family and harmony among its members, when he had those servants corrected by the lash, she promised a similar punishment to anyone who would try to curry favor with her by speaking ill of her daughter-in-law to her. Thus none dared to do so, and a remarkably sweet mutual kindness marked their lives together. And, O oh my God, and my mercy, you bestowed another great gift upon this good handmaiden of yours, and whose womb you created me. Whenever she could, she would act as a peacemaker between any disagreeing and discordant parties, listening so ably to both sides speak their bitter words, such as swollen and rough discourse, noisily spits out when an enemy's coarseness is breathed out in sour words to a friend who is present against an enemy who is absent. Yes, so ably did she listen that she would never disclose anything that was said about one party to the other, and unless it would possibly help bring about reconciliation. This would perhaps seem like something trifling to me if I did not know, to my grief, countless people who, through some horrid and widespread contagion of sin, not only disclose to people who are arguing with each other the angry words spoken by the opposed party, but also add things that were never spoken. But for a humane person, it should be quite a minor affair merely to avoid stirring up or increasing ill will through evil words, unless one were to strive, moreover, to use good words to quench it. Such was her character, she who was taught in the school of her heart by you, her innermost teacher. Finally, near the end of her own husband's earthly life, she won him for you. And once he was a believer, she no longer had to complain of him being what he was when he did not believe. She was also the servant of your servants, and whoever among them knew her found much in her that made them praise, honor, and love you, because through the witness of her holy life they perceived your presence in her heart. For she had been the wife of a man, had rightly repaid her parents, had governed her house piously, was spoken well of because of her good works, and had reared children, so often in travail, giving birth to them, as she saw them swerving from you. Finally, before she fell asleep in you, when we had received the grace of your baptism and lived together, we whom you allowed to speak on the occasion of your own gift, she so took care of us that it was as though she had been the mother of us all, and she so served us as though she had been the offspring of us all. Chapter 10 as the day of her departure from life was approaching, a day that you knew well, though we did not, it came to pass, so ordered, I do believe it, by your secret ways, that she and I stood alone, leaning upon a window and looking out into the garden of the house where we were then living in Ostia, away from the commotion of men and recovering from the fatigue of a long journey and preparing for our voyage. 
She and I were then speaking sweetly and forgetting those things that lay behind and stretching out to those that lay ahead. We, together, in the present, the truth that you are, asked each other what kind of eternal life the saints would have, a life which no eye has seen, no ear heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man. But we gasped with the mouth of our hearts for the heavenly streams of your fountain, the fountain of life, which is with you, so that we might, thus sprinkled with these waters according to our capacity, in some way meditate on so lofty a mystery. And our discourse reached such heights that the greatest delights that the earthly senses could experience, even in the purest physical light, was not only not worthy of being compared to the sweetness of that life, but even did not merit mentioning. Thus we raised ourselves with more burning affection toward the self-same, and by degrees passed through all bodily things, even the very heavens where the sun and moon and stars shine upon the earth. And we soared higher through interior reflection, discourse, and admiration for your works. Then we came to our own minds and went beyond them, that we might arrive at that place of never-failing plenty, where you forever feed Israel with the truth, where life is the wisdom by whom all things are made, as well as all that have been and will be. She is not made, but rather is as she has been, and shall ever be so. In fact, to have been and to hereafter be are not to be found in her. Only to be is found in her, for she is eternal, whereas to have been and to hereafter be are not eternal. And while we conversed and sighed for her, we lightly touched her with the whole effort of our heart. We sighed, and having gathered the first fruits of the spirits, returned to the noisy racket of verbal speech, where the spoken word has a beginning and an end. But what is like your word, our Lord, who endures in himself without becoming old and makes all things new? We then said, if someone could experience the silencing of this flesh's tumult, if the images of earth, water, and air could fall silent, and silent to the poles of heaven, and indeed, even if the soul could be silent to herself, and by not thinking of the self would surmount the self, silencing all dreams and imaginable revelation, as well as every tongue and every sign and everything at all that exists, only in the midst of transient change. For if one has ears to hear it, all these say, we do not make ourselves, he who abides forever made us. If after uttering their declaration, these things too should fall silent after having only roused our ears to him who made them, and he alone would speak, not through them, but through himself, so that we might hear his words, not by words, spoken by any tongue of flesh, nor an angel's voice, nor the sound of thunder, nor in the dark riddle of some likeness, but might hear the one whom we love in these things, might hear his very self without these, as she and I now strained ourselves and in swift thought touched that eternal wisdom which abides over all. If this could be pushed onward, and all other visions far distant from such an experience might be withdrawn, and this one ravish, absorb, and hide its beholder within these inward joys, so that life might forever be be like that one moment of understanding which we sighed over, would not this be to enter into the joy of our Lord? And when shall that be? When shall we rise again, though we shall not all be changed? While I was speaking of such things, even if not in this very way and in these very words, Lord, you know that on that day when we were speaking of these things, and when this world with all its delights became, as we spoke, contemptible to us, my mother said, Son, for my part, I have no further delight in anything in this life. What I am still doing here and to what end I still am here, I know not, now that my hopes in this world have been fulfilled. There was one thing for which I desired to linger on for a while in this life, namely to see you as a Catholic Christian before I died. My God has done this for me even more abundantly, so that I now see you moreover despising earthly happiness now that you are his servant. What else remains for me here? 
All right. Well, in these three chapters, as I mentioned, uh, of Book Nine, St. Augustine recounts parts of his mother's life, her childhood, her Christian life, her marriage to St. Augustine's father, and her role in his life, in his father's life, basically gives us a sort of brief biography of, of his mom, getting us ready to encounter her death and sort of setting up who she is. We've obviously encountered St. Monica in a number of ways throughout the confession so far, but here we kind of, St. Augustine focuses in on her. I guess anything, Father Gregory, for you, anything that stands out from her life, from who she is, from what St. Augustine is relaying and relating to us? Yeah, there's kind of a beginning, middle, end type feel to these recollections. And the beginning, you see how a sharp rebuke became an occasion for deeper conversion. So, you know, she had the habit of getting wine, and at first she was curious, and then she seemed to become somewhat dependent upon, you know, the partaking of wine at a young age. And then one of these slave girls rebukes her for it, albeit in a private conversation, but rebukes her in a way that stings. And that could have embittered her. Uh, but instead it liberates her. And so I think many people have had the experience of doing something that they're very ashamed of or something that when they reflect upon it, it still brings them a kind of pain. And yet we can take that as an occasion not for you know self-recrimination or self-accusation or further shame and guilt. Uh, we can turn that over to the Lord and that can become a source of conversion, a source of healing and of growth. So yeah, I can think of times in my life where I've not been good to people who love me and whom I love and how just the embarrassment of that and the kind of bewilderment at that can become a source of, yeah, ongoing, what would one say, expression of need before the Lord. Because you realize in those moments that it's not up to you, it's up to you to receive from the Lord, to recognize his gifts and to make good on them. And so you see how this has an effect in her life subsequently. Uh, how she relies upon the Lord in prayer for the conversion of her son, for her own you know, healing and growth in the life of grace. So that's huge. But I think maybe some of the more charming stories, probably somewhat um, controversial for a 21st century audience, is the way in which she puts up with her husband's persecutions or injustices or other things besides. So yeah, I don't know if you want to take it in that direction. Yeah, it seems that, well, so there's a mention that uh, the her husband, Augustine's father, Patricius, or Patricius, um, isn't wholly faithful to her nor wholly good to her in yeah i think i would imagine that at this point in history that the physicality between husband and wife whether they were you know hitting or beating certainly saint augustine's mom monica talks about this with other women of bearing this patiently things that wouldn't be you know tolerated with such ease at all or at all in our day and age but she bears them as a sort of way by which to show forth like a humble patience of of the christian and and with the ultimate hope of of bringing her husband along to christ too which ultimately works out so yeah we shouldn't suffer injustices and and being treated poorly in ways so as to accomplish or bring about someone's conversion i don't think that's a wholly good thing but we could see it saint augustine recounts it in monica's life as something instrumental you know the cross that she bore bears fruit later on both in augustine's and in his father's life so i think we can make the distinctions there but also see the way by which she bears patiently the sufferings of her life and offers them for for the sanctification and the conversion of others yeah and i think that there's a kind of calculus in all relationships where on the one hand you think in terms of charity like i want to love this person i want to lay my life down for this person as a result of which i'm going to put up with a little bit of nonsense for this person because if i'm always bringing everything up it becomes 
just intolerable. But on the other hand, you know, there's got to be a certain justice at work in the relationship. Like the other person just can't make a habit of victimizing you or of using you in a way that's not becoming of his dignity or your dignity. Uh, so you do want to have, you know, good boundaries. You do want to have things in place in a relationship such that you don't just become a doormat. But it's really, 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 really hard to navigate that. So you see with certain couples that they're constantly at each other and you know that there's a backstory. It's like maybe he said this previously or she said that previously. And now this is what we're what we're witnessing at present is a kind of cycle of recrimination because both find it really, really difficult to dial the conflict down um, because if they do, then they might be taken advantage of. That weakness might be sniffed out and then preyed upon. And so defenses are high and the tolerance for any kind of nonsense is exceedingly low. But you see how that just devolves into squabbling and fickleness. And an outside observer can look at that and say, this relationship isn't healthy. So at a certain point, one or the other person has to break the circle of repeated sin and say, Lord, I don't know exactly how to go about this, but I suspect that it involves me being humble and meek and not vindicating my rights at every turn or not looking for every opportunity to get even, to get square, to keep score. But that's just it's just brutal, brutal, brutal. So St. Monica is able to do it by a singular grace. And that's a grace that we can seek to model our own lives off in our relationships. And something that St. Augustine notes about his mom here is, is the kindness that she shows to her husband, but also the kindness that she shows to everybody. She just seems to be a very kind woman, a steadfast and stalwart woman, but a kind woman. And that's something that Augustine notes in his life as being impactful, uh, especially for him, because it's not, this isn't the first time that he notes somebody's kindness. You know, remember what, what it was that drew him to St. Ambrose at first. It wasn't Ambrose's sort of rhetorical intellectual skills though those were there, but it was the kindness that shown or that was showed to St. Augustine, that kind of drew him into them and drew him to Christ. So I think we uh, don't want to say that it's just like being nice, like Monica was not, no, it's the kindness of Christ. It's the charity of Christ that that is kind of radiating through these people. So it, it stands out. Okay. So at the end of these chapters of book nine, where we're led into a conversation that St. Augustine has with his, with his mother as they are in Ostia and he kind of sets the scene. They're kind of sitting by window talking about the goods that God gives and the gifts that God gives. And it leads them from things of, you know, earthly things ultimately to, to the things of heaven and the rewards uh, of the reward of the saint. So they kind of have this prayerful, contemplative, meditative conversation on on heaven, on that for which they're made. And yeah, it leads to this sort of conclusion here of, of St. Monica's life, not in her death, but in her mission. And she she tells St. Augustine, he recounts for us that basically she has, she has nothing left to do in this world. Like her mission is accomplished and that mission was to bring her son to Christ. So she has this, as we heard in the reading, she has this beautiful quote. She says to St. Augustine, son, for my own part, I have no further delight in anything in this life. What I am still doing here and to what end I still am here, I know not. Now that my hopes in this world have been fulfilled, there was one thing for which I desired to linger on for a while in this life, namely to see you as a Catholic Christian before I died. Yeah, I don't know how I would react if my mom said this and that's kind of done, hopefully with like some sorrowful joy. But yeah, she there's nothing else that remains for her here. So there's the contentment and like mission accomplished. And now she just wants to go to heaven. Um, and she confesses that to St. Augustine. So thoughts, reflections, Father Gregory. Yeah, I think we've been prepared for 
this confession of Monica by the description of her in the pages uh, that immediately precede it because she's described as one who loves affecting reconciliation. So, you know, she's accused by the house servants of X, Y, and Z things, and it's proved not to be the case. And so, um, you know, her mother-in-law is like, oh, wow, look at you being awesome. And then it says that she likes to reconcile quarreling people, and eventually she reconciles Patricius to the Lord, and then you see it here accomplished in the life of Augustine. And then there's a kind of, yeah, now let your servant go in peace type moment, because it's for her then to be reconciled, not in that she's been estranged from the Lord, but it's for her to be reunited to or rejoined to the Lord in the eternity which awaits. And I think this is a very maternal instinct. Certainly, I, you know, like I witnessed my mom, my mom really liked it when people got along, not just in a surfacey peace and concord type way, but whenever there was conflict or strain on relationships, especially within the family, it was a source of great suffering to her because she kind of like interiorized it and she experienced it very viscerally. So there was this big movement, this big drive to always bring people back in touch, to bring people back together. And I think that's just, that's part of a mother just kind of hovering over her brood, whether they are her children or, you know, those farther afield. I think a mother just sees to it that all of those whom she loves are taken care of, which I think is a beautiful thing. Uh, one of the gifts of God that you see distributed somewhat unequally among those whom he loves. But when it's present, it's it's pretty cool. Yeah, St. Monica, the influence she has in St. Augustine's life, it's it's his mom. So obviously that goes without saying, but um, it's his mom who who desires her son just to be holy, to have the good, to come to Christ, to come to the Lord. You know, one of the interesting things to me here, and perhaps this is, you know, you know, we're gonna we're gonna get St. Monica in tomorrow's episode too, but perhaps a place to leave it is that there isn't St. Monica's grateful for her son's conversion, but we don't ever have a moment of or insight into her own conversion, into the workings of Christ in her life. Like it's reflected, right, in the way she treats people and the way she behaves. It's we're told a little bit in these biographical sections, but you know, she she doesn't speak for herself about, and it's not her autobiography, so why would she? But she doesn't speak for herself about. She doesn't give testimony, but for the life that she lives and. That's enough, though. You know, it's enough. It's enough to bring her husband to Christ. It's enough to bring St. Augustine to Christ. We have these reflections here um, and their conversations about heaven, but she's just this this figure of holiness and sort of intercession and, um, yeah, is is momentous. And I don't think there's, you could sort of say more than that, how the Lord uses her to bring, to bring her son to him. So it's a beautiful woman to behold, I guess. I don't know. Final thoughts here, Father Gregory, on, on St. Monica's final moments, as it were. Yeah, and you, you see this, or we heard this uh, in chapter 10, that this is the last and kind of greatest of ascents that St. Augustine describes. So along the way, we've heard how he has transcended his mundane experience. He's ascended beyond whatever particular details have come to characterize his life, whether as a hedonist, you know, or as a pagan, or as a manichae, or as a Platonist, or, you know, whatever. He's made a number of observations, like I had to kind of surpass this difficulty or get beyond this hangup. And it usually involves a kind of mystical ascent in search of wisdom. And we've talked about wisdom quite a bit. But here, this is the most um, elaborate description. It's certainly the most transcendent of experiences. And it's very precious insofar as it's, you know, one of the last with his mother who passes away shortly thereafter. So it's cool that the mystical life characterizes a life of love 
and that love becomes a kind of mode of knowing which affords the lover an insight into the reality which sounds its depths with greater facility, with greater acuity than any other thing. You know, it's not just a matter of being the smarty pants. It's a matter of loving the realities in which we are immersed, loving the God who lies at the heart thereof, who gives them their very sense, their very meaning, and their very trajectory ultimately back onto him. So you see that in, in Monica's life and in the conversation of Monica and Augustine to that end. And obviously it's a, it's a path that, that consumes Augustine's life in due course and draws him into a greater intimacy of sanctity. Well, I think we'll leave here for today. Leave Monica and St. Augustine here and we'll pick up with them tomorrow. So stay tuned. In the meantime, know of our prayers for you. Please pray for us. And we'll catch you next time on Catholic Classics. Catholic Classics.